What does privacy have to do with running a network? Is protecting the privacy of users, customers, and the organization one of the responsibilities of the networking team? If so, what kind of information has to be kept private and how? Should privacy efforts focus on compliance or on risk reduction? And how are those different? On today's Heavy Networking, we welcome Russ White back to the podcast to tackle these perplexing privacy questions. Russ is a network architect, speaker, author, and he, including the book Computer Networking Problems and Solutions, which he co-wrote with our host, Ethan Banks. Uh, Russ, welcome back to the Packet Pushers, and let's dive right in. Uh, what kind of privacy are we talking about here? Is it a network engineer's responsibility to protect the privacy of corporate data or an individual's privacy rights over their digital lives? Well, it's actually both, right? I mean, we automatically think about privacy of corporate data and not releasing corporate data into the wild and data breaches in that realm. What we don't often so much think about is privacy rights of our users over their digital lives. And yet, as network operators, we are responsible just as much as any other part of the organization for their privacy of their of their PII. So of their privacy, who, who is there in this circumstance? Because in a corporation, we could have two different sorts of people. There's the customers who consume the products of that company, and then there are the employees of the company. Actually, both. Mm -hmm. It's both and. We're going we're <laughs> to be very, we're going to be very both and today. <laughs> so let's talk about then, particularly in the networking case, what constitutes private information? Obviously, you know, things like credit cards, medical records are common examples. Are there others that networking engineers should be thinking about when thinking about their privacy responsibilities? Yeah. And credit cards and medical records and social security numbers or unique IDs. Those are all things we often think about. What we don't think about are the IP address is defined legally in a lot of jurisdictions as yeah, as personally identifiable information and therefore protected. The location of the user, which has even become a more important thing in a world with, with hybrid work, mm -hmm. right? Are they at the coffee shop or are they home or at, are they at the office? And maybe people don't so much care if they're at the office, but they might care if they, that if everybody knew that they worked from the coffee shop for the first two hours every morning. Okay, that's interesting because you mentioned IP addresses and I'm thinking, wait, how is that private information in that it tends to get, uh, you know, you sort of need to share IP addresses if you want <laughs> some frames <laughs> to get anywhere, so. <laughs> yeah, and so somehow or another, we have to separate in our head the difference between something that is private and the way we handle that private information, right? And, and, and this is gonna go back to Ethan's question as well. For the people that are customers of the company, maybe the IP address isn't so important unless they're interacting with your website, right? And you're recording their IP address for some reason. That still can give an indication of where they are. For people who are users of your network, like your corporate buds or whatever, the folks over in HR that you love so much, those are, <laughs> those are well, you know, or upper level management as the case might be. Those folks are still, their IP addresses are still private, and yet you have more control over what happens to their data in that area. So it's normally defined as PII by these laws and regulations, because even if you have something NATed, you can go through the NAT logs and figure out which packets were sent by what person at a particular time which can give you time of access 
information. It can give you location information to some degree or another. We all know geolocation with with IP addresses is total garbage. But nonetheless, legally, that comes down to um, what goes on there uh, in, in IP addresses. So, and, and, and you have a couple of other things, right? You're logging IP addresses, which means that your logs of IP addresses are considered protected information. If you're capturing user packets and you happen to capture a username or a password that's unencrypted, congratulations, your log now contains PII. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah, or that packet capture device or whatever, yeah. Yeah. You're arguing that IP addresses are PII? You're really arguing that? I'm not the one who argues that. That's actually yeah. legal. Yeah. That, that's actually, that's that's a legal definition and under some colors of law. I mean, it's it weak makes... by itself, right? I mean, it can be used as part of a larger set of metadata to confirm uh, a unique identity, but IP by itself is so vague. You're behind NAT, very probably in the IPv4 world, carrier grade NAT, maybe so multiple layers mm -hmm. of NAT. Uh, your IP address is ephemeral uh, very often. And, you know, IPv6 addresses, I mean, forget about it. That's, you know, even even with less NAT, that's even more ephemeral potentially of an address. So it seems difficult to categorize IP addresses PI because it's such a common thing to be logged. It's logged by default by every web server in the world. Yeah, right. And And by the way, what you said at the very beginning is, is it can be used in combination with other things to identify yeah. someone. And and that's the key point. Not that it by itself is useful for that, but it can be combined with other things. A common example I like to use is people say, well, I don't put my social security number out on the internet for, for people who live in the US. I know you have listeners all over the world. So, but you know, just to, just to give a sense of this. And what they don't realize is that your social security number, what's the most common thing people ask for when they want your identity? They want your last four. Well, it turns out the last four digits are the only unique part because the first, <laughs> the first five digits are based on where you're born, what yeah. state, what city, mm. and what, what year or whatever, right? And even the last four digits, unbeknownst to most people, are, are issued sequentially. Mm, so okay. if I know the person who was born at 12 o'clock, their last four digits, and you were born at 12.05, I can be pretty good at guessing what your last four digits are mm. yeah. within a couple of digits, right? <laughs> and so that's that's um, that's a good example. Like I can take your birthday, your birth year, where well, your birthday, your birth year, your your um, your location where you were born, what city were you born in? Common backup question, right? For most right. almost every security thing. And I can take that, and there's a paper that was done by University of Boston where they went and did this, and they said, we can get within two or three, wow. knowing mm. that information. And so now I have a piece of PII, even though you didn't give it to me, by combining other pieces of information. And so the IP address falls into that, and that's why it tends to be legally classified as personally identifiable information, even if we don't think of it that way. So are we saying there is legislation out there that means those of us that are logging IP addresses, which again, everyone is, um, unless they explicitly you know, took that information out, are there, that we're in violation of some statute somewhere? It's not really that we're in violation, it's that we have to treat it as personally identifiable information, right? Uh, which means you've got to understand, right? Like the IP address on the front of the packet is PII. 
Okay, let's just let's just say it is, and let's mm-hmm. talk about what are the consequences of that, right? Mm-hmm. Well, you can't use the network without giving that information away. So therefore, it's an expected use. And as long as you're using it to forward traffic, you're using it in its primary reason that the user gave you that information, right? So there's an implicit, I'm giving you this to make the system work. And there's an implicit, you're using it the way I intended to. Now, if I took those IP addresses, stuck them in a log, and then I run them through um, MapReduce or Spark, mm-hmm. and I start pulling uh, locations out by doing that, now I'm kind of like, did I tell my users I was going to do that? Mm-hmm, okay. Mm-hmm. Right? Because you've changed, as you said, you, you can't use the network without an IP address transiting the network because that's how mm-hmm. networking works. Okay. Yeah. That's a, a requisite. But it is when you are presented with that information and then log in and do something with it that the funny stuff comes up and the things you need to be more careful about. Right. Exactly. Well, I suppose you could also be on the hook, Russ, if someone were to, say, uh, break into your web server because of a vulnerability and download your logs and do something, that would be, you're culpable for that. Yeah, As, yeah. yeah. sure you are. Sure you are. And even for IP addresses, right? Mm. And access control and usernames and passwords, yes. And so, you know, then you get into, okay, if this is true, assuming this is true, um. And, and, you know, we're kind of on the, but assuming this is true, what do we do about it? Right. What, what should we as network folk do about this? Yes. And, and that's really the question that I think we need to answer, which is what do we do about this? And if you look at any standard privacy stuff, the International Association of Privacy Professionals has whole things on handling private data. And it's all this legal stuff like, okay, if somebody grabs that log off my website, do I need to notify the relevant authorities that I've had a data breach? Yeah, because it's BII, mm-hmm. even though I might not think so. The law thinks it is. It's better safe than sorry to go find out what the what the reporting regulations are legally and, you know, do the right thing. So, so what I'm hearing you say is that for day-to-day sort of network operations, IP addresses are expected to be used as they were intended to get packets from one location to another, but it's when I start to save them, store them, maybe do other things with them that I could potentially start running into privacy issues. And that's when I need to go speak with the lawyers in my firm to figure out, you know, how should I be protecting logs? Do I need to encrypt them? What kind of access control setup do I have? Yeah. That kind of thing. That's where this regimen falls into. It's not into individual packets shooting across the network. It's about when I'm collecting and storing this information. Yeah. Yeah. And and should you de-identify over time, how long do you really need to save that data? By the way, that's the biggest thing you can do to reduce risk is to do do de-identification mechanisms. It's just to back off. I don't think I've written about de-identification yet in the blog post series, but... By the way, I should let readers know that um, that series Russ mentioned is a series he's writing on privacy for networking on packetpusher.net. We'll have links to the articles he's put up so far. Yeah, and there will be more forthcoming. So Russ, talking about de-identification, so one of the, is one of the things you can do. So this is something I've been looking at when I have, you know, nothing else going on. But Nginx, <laughs> uh, as a web server, has a JavaScript plugin that if you've got the right build of Nginx, you can add, I believe it's a JavaScript plugin. Anyway, there's a bit of code you can plug in there with the right engine that allows you to obfuscate the IP address while still allowing the IP address to be unique. 
So you can no longer identify the user because there's been some obfuscation of the IP address, but the IP address has been munged in a way that they're still unique. So if you're doing log analysis for reasons of operating your web server, just you know more mm -hmm. ops kind of stuff, not endpoint identification kind of stuff, it's still useful data. You lose a lot of that utility if you do completely do away with the IP address. So the de-identification right. thing is interesting. Yeah, and and an example I give in the presentation I do, I do like a, a privacy webinar every six months or whatever on Pearson. The example I give in that is, for instance, after five days, 10 days, make up a number, do you really need to know the host addresses or a subnet address is enough mm -hmm. to run your network, right? I can still analyze traffic patterns with just subnet addresses. I don't really need host addresses. So once I've gotten past a window where an individual user might complain about performance, whatever that window is, I can get rid of their host address and I still have the data I need to do to work on my network, but I don't, I'm not saving ident PII. And now all of a sudden, if my network gets a breach and somebody steals my logs, well, my response to the guys that I need to report to or legal folk or whatever is, yeah, but it's not PII any longer. It's gone. Hmm. The classification classification's gone. And so those are like there's techniques you can do there. It's, again, we just don't think about it. We don't do a lot with it. So something that occurs to me then, uh, a lot of the AI ML services we're hearing about rely on these massive data lakes that are usually stored in a cloud, not owned by you. Is that something I should be thinking about if they're collecting my logs and telemetry to do this analysis to provide me with some kind of service? Do I have a potential privacy issue there? Um, yeah, because you have supplied data that you've collected to a third party. If they get breached, it's still, it's their problem, but it's your problem too. Right, okay. And so, so they're, the only thing you can do is back into them and say, look, you know, this is PII. What are you doing? <laughs> like, right, so one of the things I should have on my checklist is, are you doing anything to de-identify or, or obfuscate this data so that it can't be, yeah. it doesn't fall under a PII bucket? Or are you doing restrictive access? How do you process the data? What's your destruction policy? Do you keep mm -hmm. it forever? Do you destroy it after six months? You know, all those standard data handling questions, right? That you get into, and, and really as a business you should anyway, right? I mean. If you're handing data off to a cloud provider for for like, I don't know, whatever, a network service that they're running for you or they're managing. And I guess common ones are like, I don't know, cloud doesn't cloud vision do this for Arista, doesn't Mist do this for Juniper, doesn't ACI do this for Cisco? I mean, doesn't everybody do this to some degree or another, have a cloud service where they're pulling your data logs and they're they're adjusting your network? to do the right thing in your network. I mean, you know, the, I would think there's a lot does. of that, although supposedly it is um, anonymized if it becomes part of an aggregate data set across customers yeah. for one thing. And then secondarily, if it isn't, uh, then it's, you know, it's unique to you and it's got the usual yeah. um, uh, multi-tenant sort of operability. So, right. And, and so, but then the questions you can ask are things like, okay, well, when you go to decommission a cloud server, are you properly destroying the hard drive? Like, are, are you as a cloud provider on the back end following all the good practices for making sure my data doesn't get out in the, in the wild that I would expect I, out of anybody else? I mean, that's a skeptical question. And without cloud providers on, we can't answer it directly. But we can say that historically, 
cloud providers are the ones that have that figured out supposedly they've mm-hmm. got a bunch supposedly, of standards that yeah. they have to comply with and uh, be able to demonstrate that they are compliant and yeah. the theory has gone uh, that they're probably better at probably pro- uh, properly securing a data center and your data in that data center than you are doing it yourself yeah but you mean but asking the questions doesn't hurt right? no right right sure. right just just ask well, the questions right okay, let's backpedal for a second here ross Okay, we're, we've kind of gone on the assumption during this conversation that we have all of this data that we're very, you know, we're obligated to make sure it's private and kept private and all of that. But do we really? And so the cynical, skeptical reason I'm asking that question is with all the data breaches that have happened, nothing happens to the companies by and large other than, you know, a news article or three comes out and there's some <laughs> hype and hoopla for a week or two and then everybody forgets about it and we move on. Um, so what are the reasons in 2022 that an organization should actually care about protecting data and customer privacy? So I, don't know, I don't know that I agree that nothing ever happens. I mean, it's, uh, there, the, the research in this area says that it costs about $4 million per, per data breach. That's an average, right? That's an average. So yeah. It could be worse. It could be, could be less worse, right? Cyber Second insurance. Thing, it's a risk. Cyber insurance. It's a yeah. risk. Right. So, but now if you get into cyber insurance and it's a risk, now you have to deal with a risk maker, right? They're going to make that risk and they're going to say, okay, if if I'm going to take this risk on for you, I want you to follow certain things just like they do when, when they insure your house. Right. Do you have fire extinguishers? Do you have, right. And and so you're not really getting out of it other than saying, I'm going to transfer the risk to somebody else. And that's great for the initial problem. But the secondary problem is, um, there's also research showing that once a breach occurs in a cloud service, customers move off the cloud service. There's reputational and long-term revenue harm. And so how much of that are you willing to suffer? Maybe you're a small company and you don't care. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe you're a very large company and you don't care because we've yeah. seen very large companies. <laughs> yeah. 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 And there's already a breach playbook of, Issued the apology, promised to do, you know, credit monitoring for a year, and then you move on. And yeah, yeah. I so. mean, maybe some companies can get away with that, but I don't know that I'd be, I don't think I would necessarily be happy making that kind of risk calculation. I guess I'm channeling my inner Greg Farrow here when his comment would be a lot of companies look at the risk calculation and say, rather than spending the money on mm-hmm. security teams, networking teams, compliance teams, I'm just going to run as as I am. And if I have to take the hit down the line, I take the hit down the line, but it's probably a wash in terms of the money I would have spent on, you know, fines and reputational damage versus paying to get this done properly. Yeah, it well could be. I mean, banks make that calculation all the time, right? They don't go after a lot of credit card fraud because who cares? <laughs> if you violate HIPAA or GDPR or SOX or one of these other um, regulations that an organization might be beholden to, can it get worse than fines where it's not simply money that's at stake? There's jail time or something in the worst case scenario. Yeah, there is, but I don't know that many people have ever suffered jail time over this kind of thing. Mm. I think the worst that would happen would be the fine and the fine uh, and, and not being allowed to go into that line of business again, if it were aggregarious enough, right? Ooh, uh-huh. That second and, one has uh, some teeth. Not being able yeah, to go into I that mean, line of business again is rough. Yeah, I mean, you know, if you're if you're a small provider and you own, I don't know, quick stop medical places or pharmacies or something, and you get caught up in GDPR or HIPAA, then it's possible that they that they could say, "Sorry, 
we just don't trust you to do business in this realm anymore. Find something else to do for a living. Hmm. How often does that happen, though? I've not heard of that actually. I've I've only heard of it a couple of times, but it's not it's not very common. Mm-hmm. So this goes back to your whole thing of managing risk versus doing the right thing versus being legally covering yourself, right? Mm-hmm. So there's a sense in which you're legally covering yourself. You're getting insurance, and you do what they ask you to do, and now you're legally covered. Um, fine. Um, you go out and you do your risk calculation. You say, I really don't care. But there's some sense in which I kind of want to be ethical as a person anyway. Uh-huh. And so I, I, kind, I kind of want to do the right thing, even if I'm not forced to because of risk or because of legal reasons. And hmm. so if the right thing is, particularly if it's low-hanging fruit, right? If it's I can write a Perl script or a Python script, sorry, Perl script, nobody writes Perl anymore. <laughs> a Python script. Hmm. Hey, we can go back to, t- to TCL or, or VBA if you really want to, or basic, um, <laughs> <laughs> or, or a shell script, or whatever you want to do, that drops the IP addresses out of the host portion of the IP address in my logs after a month. And that takes me 20 minutes to do, or an hour to do. The risk level is so low. I mean, the, the, the work level <laughs> is so low. Yeah. Why not just do the right thing? You know? Mm-hmm. Well, just... it, so from a, from an operator perspective, someone who's on the engineering side of the house in IT, are they the ones that make that call or does that get escalated up to the, the business? I guess I'm, I'm kind of thinking out loud here, Russ, but I guess at some point those details are so minute that why would the business stakeholders need to make that decision? I think yeah. IT is empowered yeah. at some level to make those decisions on their own. Would you agree? Yeah, I would totally agree with that. Like, if I were operating a network today, it would be, it would be something I would think about. Like just another thing that I put on my to-do list, like, all right, once, once every six months, I'm just going to look over what I'm logging. I'm going to look over what I'm data I'm using. And I'm going to see if there's anything I can do locally to make sure that I'm not keeping stuff I don't need to keep. Right. Although there is some tension here in that there may be industries where you need to have, you have legal obligations to protect privacy but you also have legal obligations to store data for X amount of time. Could be yeah. years in some cases. So for an of IT course. person to take the risk of doing just writing that script and running it, maybe they want to talk to legal first. Yeah, you might want to talk to legal first. But you know, and maybe it's not a bad thing to have a meeting once a year with legal or something and say, okay, this is my yearly check-in. What should I be doing? And 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 if there's a breach, the really cool thing about that is as boring as the meeting might be, you can at least say, hey. We had legal advice, you know? Yeah, get get those uh, meeting notes in writing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, it's, just, it's oh. just, just cover yourself a little bit, right? Now you're just doing what you can to reduce risk and reduce legal risk at the same time, right? And and I don't think there's anything wrong with that stuff to do personally. Yeah, and now this part of the conversation has got me second-guessing what we were just saying a few minutes ago, that maybe IT is empowered to make some of these decisions because all of a sudden these exceptions to the rule are concerned where it's like, Oh crap! I should not have been obfuscating that log with my my Perl script. I'll agree with you, Rossig. You could definitely do it in Perl. <laughs> built for it. Uh, and because now there's been a subpoena, and I'm supposed to be submitting these logs, and I've obfuscated the data that the court would care about. It's gone now. Oops! Are we going to be in trouble as a business? Well, I mean, again, yeah, you should probably ask, but feel empowered to ask, right? Uh-huh. Yeah. Don't, don't don't sit in the corner and say I can't do anything about this. 
Um, could you, uh, are there privacy practices that you could make the case for also having operational benefits to the day-to-day -day running of the network? Well, yeah. I mean, go to DNS and think about query minimization, right? Operationally, the more I minimize queries coming out of my network into my, off my, if I own recursive servers, so let's say you search for, I don't know, um, rust.banana.com and you do that search against your recursive server and that recursive server sends that data, sends the entire query up to the root to find that. Uh -huh. Now the root server knows what that individual user, even their IP address is searched for. Because uh -huh. what a lot of recursives do is they just encapsulate the entire query, stick it to the root, and the root dec deciphers it, figures out what goes on. Now, if you did query minimization on your recursive server that you own locally, not only are you protecting that user's privacy, because now they're not the root server is not getting their IP address, they're not getting the full query string, you're actually speeding up the root server query, uh -huh. right? So you're improving operational characteristics of the network. Because um, I'm sending less information that the root server has to do the deal with. Yeah, exactly. And so there are win-win situations. I mean, even going back to the logging thing, right? I mean, if I go back and I want to look for the last five times something happened, and the, the hits are five years old or 10 years old, how useful is that information to me? Or am I just pulling false positives? Right. Uh-huh. And so cutting off the time limits can also be useful from just a really honestly, five years ago, the network was so different. This just isn't relevant, relevant anymore. Don't care. Okay. That makes sense. Russ, I wanted to ask about the ethical obligation that companies have to pr protect customer privacy again, because you mentioned ethics earlier and from a business perspective, ethics has a pretty broad definition because you could look at it from a you know kind of a shark viewpoint and go my ethics are to enrich shareholders whatever it takes so if i can make extra money off of my customers data i'm going to do that ethics compels me to do so because i'm here to raise the stock price essentially um so there's ethics like you and i would mean it mm -hmm. uh, and then and most of the people listening i assume as well and then there's ethics like you know someone focus exclusively on the bottom line would see it. So how does, how does ethics fit into all this? Yeah. Well, if you're, if you work for a hyperscaler, I guess, you know, the latter is you're going to be your perspective. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yes. You did say that out loud. If you were wondering. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I don't know. They just reveal that Disney does the same thing with their information off their app and stuff. They use it to drive customized advertising to convince people to buy stuff. You know, it's it's a common industry thing that goes yeah. on. So, so I think that it's like anything else in the way that you treat your employees and your customers, that you want to do what's right by them to get them to trust you, to build a level of trust so they'll continue doing business with you. And so there's an argument to be made even from the rapacious, okay, no, we're going to make all the money we can make. The, really one of the ways to make all the money you can make is to build a relationship with your customer and have a trust, have a trust basis. And so that's kind of an important thing. And now, the public is increasingly aware of privacy, yeah. privacy concerns and what's being done with their data. We can maybe thank Apple for that as much as anybody. Yeah. Oh yeah. Apple's done a great job of, I don't know how well Apple's done 
in actually implementing it. I, I'm gonna, now I'm going to pull my Greg Farrow hat out and be cynical, okay? <laughs> a lot of the privacy stuff that you see that comes out of larger companies is really a matter of, I want your data and I don't want other people to have it. Mm-hmm. It's not It's not defense against your privacy. It's actually, we consider this to be proprietary. Now they'll yeah. put it in terms of, we're protecting your privacy by encrypting yeah. the data between our server and you. But what they're really doing is they're stopping the middle mile provider right. from gaining access to your traffic patterns. Or like Amazon not sh- not sending you the email notification of your order with any particularly interesting order details. You have no idea what you ordered. You can't tell. Why? Yeah, right. To protect you and your privacy? No. They don't want your Gmail account and then Google reading all your emails to figure out a pattern of what you buy from Amazon so they can advertise to you. Yeah. Yeah. And and they can make the argument is for your privacy, right? Yeah. And so, and so there's a bit of obfuscation that goes on here that, that we have to be careful about when we talk about, you know, companies and their ethical obligations for privacy. But yeah, I mean, I think that companies do have an ethical obligation, at least people do, to do the right thing where they can. Understanding that there are business needs that, that sometimes drive you down paths you wouldn't necessarily want to go down. So with or without ethics, there are, uh, you know, compliance regimes in place, thinking about HIPAA, GDPR, SOX, PCI. But in the intro, I mentioned, you know, pointing out the difference between having a compliance mindset versus a risk reduction mindset. How how do you make the difference between the two? So the problem for me with legal compliance is it changes all the time. You know, you look at what's going on with California and the U.S. laws on privacy. California passed a set of laws on privacy. Um, they're, they're, I think, from what I remember, they're loosely based on GDPR. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the U.S. government is thinking about doing the same thing. There's bills in Congress. But the question is, will they override the California laws or not? I right. don't know. But if they do, the legal landscape is going to change. And by the way, Scotland and Ireland and England, well, not England anymore, but but um, Scotland and Ireland and France and Italy all implement GDPR differently. Right. And so to some degree, the legal landscape is so confusing and so difficult to deal with that it's just safer to be able to say, yeah, but I did the best I could. I mean, really, I was risk averse. I did identify data when I thought I could do it. I encrypted stuff in rest and in and in motion. I restricted access where I thought I could. You know, I had business requirements to stop me from restricting access here or there or whatever. And then let the chips fall. I mean, I had my yearly meeting with the lawyers. I, I did what I could do. And now there's a breach. And and what am I supposed to do now? You know? Uh-huh. I, I, I'm a network engineer. I'm not a lawyer. I can't keep up with all the lawyers. <laughs> Right. Scotty might say. <laughs> so you're saying instead of focusing on the minutia of compliance requirements, try to find steps that are actually reducing the risk and hopefully there'll be some kind of overlap? Yeah, well, I assume there will be overlap. And I also think that when bodies that do the work of enforcing these laws see that you tried, Right. It's like when the cop stops you and says you were doing 80 and a 25 and you're like, yes, but my wife is broken water, you know, right. Or my, my hedgehog has to go to the vet or whatever it is. <laughs> then most cops are going to be like, 
yeah, okay, let me turn my lights on and escort you, right? Mm-hmm. You're doing what you think is right. You're trying to save life. Let, let's let's deal with the law legal questions later, right? And I think most most organizations that do compliance in these areas are going to be that way. They're going to say, yeah, you you identified this information. You anonymized it. You did what you could do. And it wasn't perfect. But, you know, (laughs) it wasn't perfect. (laughs) So you sort of anticipated my next question was, even if I'm taking more of a risk reduction approach, I still do have to demonstrate compliance. Are there ways I can use this risk reduction approach to show my auditors, my assessors, and even executives or lawyers that, yes, I am trying to follow these steps. Yeah, I think I think if you're recording what you've done, then yeah, I think so. <clears throat> I think you can. And the other thing is, if you're doing risk reduction, and somebody does come in and do an audit, then they're going to say, "We'll do more of that." Right? Let's not play the game like we do with security. Which, by the way, security is just another form of protecting privacy. Let's not play the game we do with security and say, "Well, I need a firewall." And the auditor is going to check to make sure there's filters configured. So what I'm going to do is I'm just going to put a permit any, any, but I'm going to do it in a way that, you know, nobody realizes the auditor can't understand what I just did. Uh-huh. So I'm compliant, but I'm not actually doing anything. You definitely haven't reduced your risk. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. So you mentioned security uh, and privacy seems like it, I mean, probably straddles a variety of the traditional IT silos. How might an organization then divide up responsibilities among networking, security, ops, developers, et cetera? Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's, such a, that's such a loaded question. Oh, boy, oh, boy. Lead us, Russ. Lead us to glory. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, how many balloons fit in a bag? <laughs> <laughs> I guess, I mean, maybe to let's focus more maybe on networking and security. Are there areas where you feel like, yes, this is definitely a networking issue where I'm thinking maybe encryption as an example, should the security team be in charge of it? Is the networking team in charge of it? Yeah. I mean, I would hope that security in motion would be something the network team would be in charge of, Mm -hmm. but, you know, maybe, maybe there are security teams that deal with that. Let let me put a finer point on it, Russ, because... Right. Security in motion. So things traversing the wire, you you have the networking folks that tend to govern the devices mm-hmm. that are pushing packets over the wire. Um, they're the ones that do the care and feeding, and that's where their security would uh, would come into play. You're going to be dealing with access lists and firewalls and you know, these kind of things. But in the organizations where I felt like security was done the best that I've been a part of, the policies and the governance of security was a separate function from the implementation of that security. So we'd have a security group that would say, these are the policies and these are things that we need to comply with because PCI, because this, because that reasons. And then they were knowledgeable enough about the network to say what those policies should should look like, you know, more granular specific way. The networking folks would then implement that as a kind of a separate hand. So there was like a separation of duties here. So you as the network person weren't having to interpret the rules and figure out what compliance looked like and then put a policy in place with your own back door for yourself that no one knew about kind of thing that was technically breaking the rules and so on. And instead, you've got the security group that would come in and do some audits and they'd bring in third parties to do separate audits. And then the network engineers wouldn't 
wouldn't really have much to do with policy except maybe to raise a new ones. Hey, we've got a new capability. Maybe we should bake this into our policy and revise it or something, but weren't just doing things on their own. Do you see a separation like that as a, a you know, something that should be normal, Russ? Well, I think it's a risk reduction mechanism, isn't it? You're spreading the risk out. You're saying these people are responsible for following the legal bits and deciding what needs to be done. These people are responsible for figuring out how to do it. And and uh-huh. that's that's actually I think a good a good division of labor. Um, yeah, the security guys don't necessarily need to be in firewalls. Now I'm probably going to get like rotten eggs <laughs> for this, but that's okay. The security guys probably don't need to be in firewalls to building filters, right? That probably needs to be the network guys. Yeah, security guys yeah. need to be saying need to be saying, okay, you need to make sure that this host that's been put up over here belongs on this v on this VLAN, and nobody from the outside world can get to it. Or we got to make sure that all sessions are originated from inside on this particular address, rather than you know whatever. We don't really care how you do that. That's not our problem. Our problem is to set up policy, and maybe even the policies I've given are too fine grained. Um, and by the way, this is where. You know, the intent-based folks will tell you, well, if you had a good intent-based system, then the security guys wouldn't have to deal with the networking people because they would put their intent into the system and it would come out as the configured policies. <laughs> Making a, an intent-based system that would satisfy all the security requirements would basically just shut off the entire network and be like, there we go. Yeah, well, Secure that's, now. Right. that's right. <laughs> no, I, I, heard one thing. If you really want to protect your data, put it on a, on an SSD and encapsulate it in concrete and take it out <laughs> into the middle of the Marinette Trench or whatever right. and throw it in the ocean and your data will be perfectly secure. <laughs> I wanted to go back what you said a minute ago about um, you're going to get rotten eggs thrown at you for saying that security people shouldn't have their hands on the firewall policy and, you know, writing rules and stuff. Yeah, I actually agree with you. They should be the ones dictating the policy because reasons. And then as a separation of duties, a check and a balance, you've got some other group that is implementing that policy. That's a separate thing. One hand and the other hand balance each other out. There's no funny business that goes on there. Again, it's a risk reduction. And uh, again, going back to organizations where I felt like security was done the best, that was the paradigm. That's how it worked. Um, you didn't just make up your rule set, you know, willy nilly. You had a policy that you were following that was originated from a different group that would show up once in a while and make sure you were following the policy, but did not implement the policy. Just like you that were implementing the policy didn't come up with the policy. Right. Right. I think that's the perfect way to go. Because again, you're splitting, you're allowing the security people to focus on what needs to be done and not how to do it. And you're letting the networking folk figure out not what needs to be done on the security side, but how to actually do it, right? Uh-huh. And so networking folk need to think about what needs to be done in terms of routing protocols and connectivity and speeds and feeds and stuff like that. Security is just, I mean, I kind of know a good bit about security because it's kind of osmosis, right? You kind of deal yeah. with it a lot. And, but of course my security is largely BGP sec and, SOBGP and routing protocol security, it's not so much host security level stuff, but still, you know, but you don't, but, but you can't be an expert at everything. And so learn how to divide your expertise up. Yeah. Although I guess we're, we're facing a reality here that in smaller shops, especially the IT folks, there's only a few of them. And so the person that is the network engineer is very probably also a security engineer on on a very practical level because there aren't enough people Mm -hmm. to separate duties in the idealized scenario that we're talking about. 
Um, you're yeah. going to have to do that. I, I was that person for years where it was, yeah, I managed all the firewalls and there wasn't anybody telling me what the policy was other than at a high level. Make sure bad things what? don't happen, Ethan. Oh, okay, I'll go write rules and make sure bad things don't happen. What port should I open? We don't know. That's what you're supposed to know. You wrote the app. You don't know. We have no idea. Great. I'll get a packet sniffer. And at the end of the day, there's a firewall yeah. policy that got written. Is this, that's is terrible, this why? but that's the reality I think a lot of folks live in. Is this why all the hair is migrating down? <laughs> it might be exactly <laughs> that. <laughs> I don't know. I still have all my hair, so, you know. Yeah, lucky you. <laughs> Older than me and still have all your hair, and I have none of mine. I don't know how that, how that goes. No. So encryption so, everywhere, Russ, does that solve all our problems? I think encryption everywhere is not a bad thing. I don't think it solves all of our problems, but I think I think we should be looking more at more heavily encrypting things on the wire. Um, just just because why not? Um, Even on I the was, internal network. Yes, I was actually at a, a large network provider. Uh, well, hyperscaler at one point in my life. And we had a situation where it turned out because of a public release not related to the company at all, that someone that an outside agency was in fact sniffing the traffic inside the data center. Mm -hmm. And, you know, nobody thought that could happen. I mean, we had physical security, we had everything else, blah, blah, blah. And yet there it was. And so what do you do? Well, the only thing you can really do to guard against that particular threat model is to encrypt traffic top of rack, top of rack, right? Or host to host. Right. I, my immediate pushback on that was going to be, but what about visibility? But now that I'm thinking about it, I'm thinking, well, maybe, you know, aside from, uh, you know, wanting to do a full packet decode, I'm still getting header details. I could probably still do flow. Yeah. Encrypting internal traffic wouldn't necessarily blind me to what's happening on the network. Yeah. There's actually an IAB workshop coming up on that very topic of what do we do about encryption in the modern world and our, our desire for network visibility, particularly for transit providers and edge providers, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. I can't, I don't, I just can't do that. I mean, my internal network, one way you can try to solve it is you can have agents on all your devices, right? Which a lot of it's, that's easier said than done. That's kind of crazy, but that's one of the things you can undertake to do. Th that is do but, traffic inspection before it gets encrypted and sent on its yes, way. Yeah. That's correct. Um, but there are systems out there now commercial systems, if you're large enough to need one and large enough to be able to buy one, that will classify the traffic, even though it's encrypted. It will say, mm -hmm. this is voice. This is HTML or whatever. It doesn't know it contents, but it has a pretty good idea based on a lot of things that can be identified about the flow, you know, what it is. Yeah. I think Drew was alluding to that earlier. Yeah, yep. there, are, there, are, there are systems that can do that kind of thing. So, okay. so think about encryption everywhere. With yeah, storage people too. <laughs> yeah, I don't think it's necessarily. I mean, it, it's 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 a it's a high end goal, right? Sure. It's one of those things that you'll probably never get to. But if you're putting up a new link, why not think about it, right? Max if you're building a new data center fabric, why not think about it? It mm -hmm. it doesn't hurt anything to think yeah. about. Even if the answer is no, ultimately, at least you put it in the hopper and you thought about it and said no, I can't do that, and you have reasons for not. Sure, and that might also raise other conversations about what are we doing about privacy, what are our policies, et cetera, that get different balls rolling, but at least you've introduced the topic. Yeah, exactly. Exactly.
So let's wrap up on one last question. We've been talking uh, sort of from the context of, you know, users and customers. What about I as an employee of the company I'm working for? Do I have any privacy rights while I'm at work? Do I have any expectation of privacy? So, of course, that's going to depend on legally where you are, right? And where you live and, and the company you work for and stuff like that. But in general, the answer is yes. There there have been cases where people have taken their company to court for violating their privacy huh. and, and releasing information about them. I'd love to hear the legal precedent on that. In that, almost every company I've worked for, I've had to sign off on something that basically says, if you use our systems, your data is ours. Anything we want to look at, we can, we have that right. You have no rights. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and we make that assumption, but I think that under GDPR and other regimes that we're going to start seeing that break up a little bit, that yeah. people are going to start saying, no, you really don't need to know that I was cruising the web looking for a new fountain pen. Okay. Yeah. Honestly, mm -hmm. that that's just like, that's too much. Or I was cruising the web because my daughter was diagnosed with some disease. I was cruising the web looking for information mm. on that disease. And I just happened to be on my work computer because I was called at two o'clock in the afternoon and I had a 30 minute break at two 30. So I sat down and started my research at two 30 and I just happened to be on my work computer. Like you set up circumstances where you're like, I, I'm not really sure that's cool. Mm. <laughs> yeah. I can see we're getting into overlapping issues of, you know, issue, issues around protections around medical privacy and so on versus that yeah. uh, sense that uh, when you're using business assets, they have more leeway with what you're doing with those assets. Right. And and that's another point too, right? Don't use business assets for personal stuff. Even <laughs> right. like, if you can avoid it. If you can avoid it. I mean, I know people who say, well, I only have my work laptop and I do, I have, I own Microsoft 365 and I do all my my uh, my personal work in the cloud from my work laptop. Mm. It's like, you you don't get it, do you? Yeah. Mm. Like that's yeah. not the way it works. Like you're still on the corporate laptop. Okay. And, and so they're still able to monitor everything that you're doing. And so that's problematic. Right. Like it's, it's not that cut and dry. Okay. So that area is messy. Yeah. Very messy. All right, Russ, well, thank you for digging into. I think probably we raised more questions about privacy than provided answers, but hopefully we gave people things to think about because it is a complicated topic. Uh, as I mentioned, you are writing a blog series on packetpushers.net about privacy and networking uh, and IT. Uh, we'll have links in the show notes. In the meantime, uh, what else are you up to? How can folks follow you on the internet? Is there anything else you want to plug? You mentioned a course you're doing and so on. Yeah, I do a course every six months with Pearson. And my next one upcoming is actually September at six hours on data center fibers. Can you imagine listening to me for six hours on data center fibers? <laughs> People have been watching many of your entries on the Packet Pushers YouTube channel that we've published recently about BGP I mean, like, and so on. So someone might want, must want to watch it, Ross. I don't know. It's kind of crazy. Like, wow. <laughs> so, yeah, I was doing three hours on data center fabrics. I switched it to six hours. And then I do I do something with Pearson every every month, so you can always look. It's easy. It's just follow Rule Eleven Tech. I announce everything there. Okay, In right. Fact, That's your Pearson. your blog site, Rule Eleven uh, yeah. One One Rule One One Tech. Yes, Rule One One Tech. Yeah, and and I, all my hedge podcasts and everything is all I post it. That's like the central funnel for everything that I work on other places. So you can find out what I'm doing there. All right. 
Well, thank you, Russ, for joining us. Uh, and thanks to you for listening. If you like this show and you want more, there's a smorgasbord of fine, free technical podcasts and our community blog. It's all at packetpushers.net. You can follow us on Twitter at packetpushers. Find us on LinkedIn, hear us on Spotify, and rate us on Apple Podcasts. Uh, and as Ethan mentioned, Packet Pushers does have a YouTube channel. You'll get free courses, including uh, data center fabrics uh, from Russ White. Um, and also BGP, we've got Ansible for networking and more. You can also sign up for our human infrastructure newsletter. It's a free weekly email, includes essays, links to technical blogs and news, Packet Pushers commentary, instructional videos, and a few laughs. It's all at packetpushers.net slash newsletter. And last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough.